You're listening to the Data Point Podcast, brought to you by The Hindu. I'm your host, Sonika Loganathan. On October 30th, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, more commonly known as Lula, won Brazil's nail-biting presidential election. He will assume office on January 1st, 2023. Lula's win was far from guaranteed. Since 2019, Brazil has been run by Jair Bolsonaro, a right-wing political hardliner who embodies many of the same viewpoints and political tactics as former U.S. President Donald Trump. As a conservative populist, Bolsonaro had aimed to reduce Brazil's crime and corruption rates and boost economic growth. However, some of the most notable points of his presidency were laced in controversy. From the erosion of LGBTQ rights to his devastating mismanagement of the COVID-19 pandemic, which killed over 600,000 people. On the other hand, Lula, who served as president between 2003 and 2010, is a leftist populist with roots in Brazil's labor union movement. His campaign focused on tackling issues like inequality, hunger, and conserving the Amazon. The two candidates practically come from polar opposite ends of the political spectrum. To get a better understanding of Brazil's political landscape, I spoke to Valentina Sader, Associate Director at the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsht Latin America Center, where she leads the center's work on Brazil, gender equality, and diversity. Valentina, tell us about these two candidates and why people found themselves gravitating towards one or the other, given how different they are. Hi, Sonica. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. I think one important point to note is the fact that um, both Lula and Bolsonaro were the top leading candidates in terms of approval, but also in terms of disapproval. So I think that that was something that we saw from the beginning, even before we even go deeper into the policies that any of them actually um, were proposing. Having said that, I think that there was a, a momentum there and, and this election season was marked by the us versus them narrative. And that deepened the polarization that we were able to see so clearly with the electoral results. I think that one of the things that we can also say is that the main factor that was leading uh, the decision of votes for citizens in Brazil this time around is often is often like that. We saw this in the U.S. too, but the, the economy. And how did this play out with voters, given how tight the race was? We have this uh, anti-Lula, but also this anti-Bolsonaro feeling in Brazil. And I think that that's why we were able to see tactic voting playing a role, which is when you decide to vote for someone that will, that will actually win, that, you have a, that has a higher chance of winning against the person that you don't want to become president. And when did this level of polarization kind of start gaining momentum in Brazil? Was there a specific time period or something that happened that kind of instigated this? I think that even in 2018, when we had the last presidential elections, and this is something to say, like elections in general tend to be polarizing. But I think that what is surprising is how deep the polarization in Brazil um, is right now. Lula won by a difference of 2 million votes. It's 
it's very small considered the size of Brazil. Um, so I think that in a way we saw a little bit of that polarization playing out in 2018. But again, I think that what we are able to see so clearly this time is this divide in terms of uh, this tactic voting, right? The idea that the two of them are the only ones that can beat one another. So they had such great support, such a such a um, committed uh, base. But at the same time, that base was very against uh, the other one. So in a way that deepened the polarization, as well as the narratives that they were all using um, in the sense of, you know, I am not him versus having actually a deeper debate on the policy implications, the promises for the campaign and what will make Brazil a stronger country, for example. So in a way, I think that the narrative throughout the electoral campaign in this season was one that actually fostered this this polarization. All right, so let's talk about Bolsonaro. He's been a controversial leader, to say the least. Still, 49.1% of people voted for him. So what continued to make him such an appealing candidate? So the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, the mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the increased deforestation on the Amazon, wasn't necessarily something that made people decide to vote for for Lula versus Bolsonaro. One other thing that I think is major and probably one of the the driving forces of this greater support for uh, Bolsonaro is the fact that there is still a very strong feeling in Brazil against corruption. And in that sense, Lula and the Workers' Party end up being a representation of that. Right. And for some context here, Lula was imprisoned in 2018 after he was found guilty for taking bribes from engineering firms in exchange for public contracts. His workers' party also allegedly used some of this money to pay off politicians and buy their votes. A year later, the Supreme Court voted to overturn his sentence, seeing the criteria for the arrest as unconstitutional. I think that the most uh, important point here is the fact that Bolsonaro's basically his his promises in terms of even on his first round of his first term in office was about the economy and was about this positioning of being anti-corruption. He prides himself of not having any corruption cases involving him necessarily in his term. So I think that corruption is a key point here. But in terms of economic policies, like you mentioned, he had a very strong policy in opening up the Brazilian market for foreign investors, um, making sure that we were, you know, Brazilians were compliant to OECD standards as we are in the process of a sanction. He was able to pass, for example, the a social security reform, which was something that was important for, for the Brazilian economy. And in a way, all of these measures were appealing to uh, the business community in Brazil, as well as to, to others in that sense. Brazil's elections have two rounds. In the first round, people can cast their vote from a pool of multiple candidates. If no candidate gets more than 50% of the vote, then the top two candidates face off in a runoff election, which was what happened this year. So we saw that in the first round of elections in particular, there was a bigger push of Lula to actually um, to actually win, try to win in the first round, uh, which in a way kind of drove Bolsonaro supporters or those that were going to vote for a third way candidate to actually vote for Bolsonaro, which explains also the difference that we saw um, between polling numbers as well as um, between polling numbers and the results that we actually had in the first round. 
In the second round, Bolsonaro got 49.1% of the vote and Lula won with 50.9% of the votes. So Valentina, how was Lula able to bring, you know, just enough voters over to his side? I think that Lula came uh, to this campaign season able to show that during his past terms in office that people had the... um, you know, he uses he used this in his rhetoric uh, during the campaign of like people were happy, people had purchasing power, you know, people were able to because of many different instances in, in, for example, in terms of the global economy and how the global economy was doing at the time, which is also something else that he will see as a challenge in this upcoming term. Um, but he was able to show that during his his terms, people were doing well economically. And I think that that's one thing that he was able to to rely on and push for. Not only that, like you mentioned at the beginning, the fact that Bolsonaro had this mishandling of the pandemic, um, in addition to some of his uh, controversial narratives, I think this was also another, uh, another way in which Lula gained support. Now let's talk about one issue that's a major issue not just for Brazil, but for the entire world. That issue is the destruction of the Amazon. The Amazon covers about 40% of South America's landmass, with most of the rainforest located in Brazil. Home to a third of the world's trees, the Amazon acts as a carbon sink, which means it's able to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. According to the Washington Post, when the Amazon is healthy, its annual carbon uptake is similar to Germany's total greenhouse gas emissions. Under Bolsonaro, deforestation rates hit record highs. Amazon and MAP Biomass, two of Brazil's most renowned environmental research groups, found that over 2 billion trees have been cut down or burned under Bolsonaro, and satellite imagery shows the forest ecosystem has reduced by 17%. With large swathes of the Amazon being cleared by burning, some parts of the forest are now emitting more carbon dioxide than it absorbs. A recent analysis by Carbon Brief said that under Lula, the Brazilian Amazon could see deforestation get cut by 89%, as long as Lula, quote, follows through on a pledge to address illegal deforestation in the Amazon, in line with his previous presidency. It also assumes that these conditions would remain the same out to 2030, unquote. Valentina, first off, what kind of relationship do the Brazilian people have with the Amazon? Well, I'm Brazilian myself, so I can um, share a little bit of my own experience. But I think it's important to know, first of all, that Brazil is huge, right? And most of the population, the majority of the Brazilian population live far away from the Amazon. So that kind of puts gives us a little bit of a distancing um, from the Amazon and uh, where people actually live and see. And experience on the day-to-day. Regardless of that, um, Brazilians are very proud of the Amazon and they do prioritize the Amazon, but they're also very protective over it. So when we hear, I, I, I know, and at least from my experience, what we've been hearing and what we've heard growing up but also is this protective um, sense in terms of sovereignty in particular, like uh, how is the international community being engaged or involved, getting involved in the Amazon? This is something that it tends to be a little bit controversial in Brazil um, in terms of actually this, this protection over our sovereignty in that region. I also spoke to Fabro Steibel, 
the executive director at the Institute for Technology and Society of Rio, and the lead partner on the nationally representative survey on climate change and public perception in Brazil, in partnership with Yale University and the Brazilian survey research firm IPEC. I asked him the same question. Brazil is a very young country. So it's a really, really young identity. The Amazon has played a role in this identity. So in the 50s, in the 60s, it started this idea that Brazil has a, a, a precious uh, jewel, which was the Amazon. It started something like a naive admiration for something so big, so green, so amazing. And then, especially in the authoritarian regimes, there was this idea that Amazonia was kind of what everyone in the world would like to steal from us, this nationalist view of Amazon forest as a, a resource that uh, we had to protect. Then comes Echo 92, and then comes a, a different approach that will look at Amazonia as uh, the lungs of the world, that idea that Amazonia is a symbol of a green world, which then is also something that uh, science has understood differently. But from the left, from the right, from the young, to, from the old, Amazon has always played this big role as something that Brazilians admire and like to preserve. Very few Brazilians have actually been in Amazonia, and those who have been have been a very, very specific part, which would be usually the river, uh, part of the river, and the capital of one of the states that has uh, the Amazonia. They haven't been in the Amazonia of other countries that border us, for example. So it's a very... Um, symbolic image of the, the Amazonia. But this is something people want to preserve. Do they connect this to deforestation? Absolutely, yes. The research shows very clearly that people are against deforestation and they believe that uh, economic development should happen in spite of uh, deforestation. So in terms of priorities, the economy remains a priority over the environment, right? I think that it was a priority, but like you said, economy was a bigger priority. I think that uh, COVID was another priority. Um, education is a big priority too. Um, so I think that it, it obviously the environment has a big a big role in the campaign season, especially because uh, it is a point that they are able to differentiate themselves on um, in terms of what Lula has done and what Lula plans to do, as well as what Bolsonaro has done and what he was planning to do. Um, so I think it had, an, it had a big role, but at the same time, the economy is much, much bigger than, um, than the environment in itself. I think that in a way, you're also able to focus on the sustainable development, sustainable growth side of things in which you bring in the environmental and uh, part of that conversation into the economy, um, making it a priority too. Now, let's take a look at the survey. It found that most Brazilians, 96%, said climate change is happening and 77% said they believed human activity was the primary cause. So Fabro, how much of a role do you think this kind of thinking played in the elections, especially given that Bolsonaro is a known climate change denier? What the data says is that climate change is not a topic of a left, right, woman, male, uh, young, old. Climate change is a thing in Brazil. People are concerned and people are uh, worried about it. That's where the 96% come from, is everyone. So the idea we had of uh, climate deniers, the idea that some people have scientific arguments to be against climate change, this is not something we see in Brazil. 
maybe you find in a very niche uh, parts of the country this kind of information, but the broad majority of Brazilians are just supportive of climate change and attribute that to human behavior. 77% says uh, exactly this. So uh, the message for the, for the president, any president, any Congress is quite simple. Um, we care about environment, we care about climate change, and we'll support politicians who care about it as well. It might not be how you decide the final vote, but it's certainly something that we care deeply enough to support. Bolsonaro was a president with not many agendas, lots of talking, but not many agendas. So when you look at what has actually been done, most of the actions is undoing things rather than doing things. Uh, deforestation in the Amazon is one thing that you can undo. Uh, if you get the first years of Lula, you see the fire deforestation reduce it in 78%. But then it's a very complex system to take care of. It's huge amounts of lands. It's very unequal areas. It's areas where the state, uh, police, hospitals, mayors, and so on, they are very few and co can be easily co-opted to be part of, the, of a criminal scheme. So years of a fighting to stop deforestation, those policies were retracted by Bolsonaro. And then if you understand for the supporters and the way that Bolsonaro spoke about the Amazon forest, in the views of Bolsonaro, he was not destroying the Amazon. He was saving the Amazon because he was bringing development. That idea from the 70s, from very uh, developing uh, plans of view that led, for example, to the idea to create a city in the middle of the Amazon, uh, Manaus, the capital, or to have a road that will connect whole Brazil across the jungle. That idea of developmentism, that, uh, you know, progress is good. So for those who only hear about Bolsonaro from Bolsonaro supporters and hear this message, they might have the idea that the Amazon was being protected and promoted, while we know by facts that it wasn't. So where the support comes from, I think the link between those who support deforestation, those who are against climate change, are not necessarily the profile of those who support Bolsonaro. But there are many things that uh, Bolsonaro was supported for. Uh, there is religion, there is uh, the fact that he's a man, there, there are other things that might make someone sometimes wanting to protect the Amazon, but highlighting the preferences level something higher to be a supporter of Bolsonaro. What we hope to happen now is that all candidates, no matter the spectrum in the future, will do at least the same thing, which is take climate change seriously uh, and have a plan of action on it and protect the Amazon. Maybe this is the lesson learned of Bolsonaro. So with this in mind, how has climate change affected Brazilians? The sad news is that climate change is a big word and it's not necessarily related to things that are related to climate change. So let's get, for example, fuel prices. They are related to climate change, but when we see other researchers that do qualitative views, they do not necessarily relate. Um, high, uh, water supplies, the same. Food quality or food price, the same. They are related to climate change. So main concerns of Brazilian are related to climate change, but do they connect these things? Apparently not. So there is a, still a lot of work to be done uh, in the consciousness of the Brazilian adult society that 
climate change has broad impacts that are very close to your family, very close to what you what you care for. This shows in the research. We show that climate change is higher when you consider that it affects uh, your family. So people care more because your family will be impacted and involved. But do they necessarily relate one topic to another? Data isn't conclusive. Uh, and other countries show similar results. So people are connecting, but slowly. What people connect the most are kind of these physical events like rain, like smoke, uh, things that they can see as part of the nature and then associate that to climate change. Uh, certainly, the concern with that has grown in Brazil. Our research, uh, the concern is always high, so we don't see these um, gains. But other research we see shows that people are being more concerned because they are feeling more the consequences. According to the World Wildlife Fund, over 34.1 million people live in the Amazon. Of this total, almost 2.7 million are Amazonian indigenous people, which is 9.2% of the Amazonian population. They represent over 350 ethnic groups, 60 of which still live in voluntary isolation. Deforestation isn't just about the flora and fauna, but people too. So I want to ask, how have these communities been impacted? So in Brazil, especially in the Amazon, there are protected lands for indigenous communities. And one of the things that we had been seeing and that activists have been denouncing is actually illegal activities uh, in those areas too. So what I think that the priority here and some of the dimensions that the Lula administration has already um, alluded to and that some activists are pushing for is actually on how the indigenous communities and indigenous leaders can actually have a more active role um, in protecting that land. Um, I think that this is something that we are going to watch and see how that how those dynamics play out. We had for the first time one president that was against preservation of the Amazon. So he was um, uh, spinning the message and saying that it's not that I'm against um, original populations, it's that I want them to be like us. So this idea, colonial idea that the, the different person the, from the other group can be like you, and this is a, a good thing. Uh, he was not uh, against, in theory, um, deforestation. He just didn't care. And then there's a lot of corruption there because we know that lots of votes and lots of political support come from the regions. So it's a very complex system. Results, unfortunately, shows that he didn't take care of the Amazon or carbon. And then everywhere you look, numbers are going up. Um, I'm not saying Brazil is alone in this. Other countries have problems as well. But our problem is quite 19th century uh, difficult. Do not burn. <laughs> a solution here is pretty simple. So just so I'm understanding properly here, are you referring to the indigenous people who are living in the Amazon and sort of, you know, trying to get them to be a bigger part of the community and a bigger part of the workforce, more importantly? Maybe two quick, quick things about that. The first one is that number, numbers are clear to say that uh, zones uh, designed as regional populations control are way more protective or environment reserves than other areas. So if we still have not that many burns and not many damages, we must credit original populations uh, zones for that. 
Uh, Bolsonaro, for the agro-industry support slash agenda, wanted to reduce the numbers of areas uh, designed for regional populations. He was unable to do that because uh, there's a constitutional thing. It's higher than a pen uh, of the president. But he was able to stop the process of new lands that were just kind of like in the later stages. Um, he, even did, he even disobeyed a judicial order to just uh, do the last signature to, to start it. So he has um, reduced protection for uh, indigenous populations. He has also co-opted small groups of indigenous populations because there's lots of contradictions in groups, right? And this, they start to use these groups as the only voices of the whole indigenous population movement. Lots of problems with that, uh, of representation there. And then uh, what indigenous were saying was the 19th century saying, oh, I want Nikes and I want to be part of the consumer system. It's okay to have a Nike and be part of a consumer system as long as your culture and so on is what designs you to want that. So there was uh, human rights offenses to original populations. There was persecution. There was killings, uh, especially in the Amazon region. You will see really, really, really uh, threatening events, increases of guns and so on. So Bolsonaro was really threatening for indigenous populations, policies and existence. And this is closely rela related to climate just because uh, who, who protects and controls better is, uh, these areas or regional populations. So the survey also found that people see loggers and farmers as responsible for forest fires and this environmental degradation. Indigenous people and NGOs are the least to blame. So given this situation, given this outlook, the data, given that 50% of people believe that the government is best suited to solve this problem, what needs to happen going forward? What do you think can happen and what do you think Lula can do to protect the Amazon and then still be able to kind of appease both sides of the political spectrum? Uh, the good news about the question we did about who's responsible is that you see a clear detachment between what the government said and what population thinks. So if you listen to the governments, NGOs are burning the forest and indigenous populations are just threatening the forest as well because they want mining. If you look to the people, you see that it's less than 4% of people that would agree with that. And then more than half percent will believe that companies and governments are responsible for that because those are who, are, who have power. If you look at numbers in the region of the Amazon forest, you see a little difference in the numbers. Um, but even so, the overall look is this. Lula has uh, ruled before. Uh, he has done things before. Lots of the institutions we have were today were strengthened during Lula's um, period. So to Lula do something, basically he just have to redo what he was doing before. It was working. There is uh, different challenges now. So polices are more fascist than before. There is more rebellion, uh, especially uh, in the lower ranks. And in that region, uh, you will see uh, police state forces being used for the forestation instead of against the forestation. Those are challenges that are new, and we need to understand how to tackle that. But overall, Lula can have the stick and the carrot. Uh, the carrot would be uh, funds like Norway or Germany or countries that will pay for the forest to stay as it is. 
different forms are being designed in different formulas, carbon markets and so on are being uh, designed. But clearly, when you look at COP, money is coming, ideas are coming, so the carrot is coming. The second thing is the stick. Uh, those are not uh, really uh, highly organized crimes as you see in the drug market, for example, but they are organized. And the way to fight that is to use the state. You do have to make arrests. You do have to make investigations. For sure, we're going to have different heads of police forces. Whoever Bolsonaro uh, gave the, the police to be led were people that were not kind of the most respectful or senior police members, were just people who supported his views. So this kind of problem is gone. Um, but it will be a, a reconstruction process because polices are damaged as well. Institutions are damaged uh, in general and police forces are damaged. And we have an economic crisis. So we have less money around and we know that one of the factors that produce carbon as one of the factors that produce deforestation is the economy. The economy going bad, people just make more uses of coal and more uses of deforestation. So it's not simple. But again, Lula has ruled before, so it's not something that he has to reinvent the wheel. But that doesn't mean that Lula won't face challenges, particularly in Congress. Lula is going to face a conservative Congress, and you have some key Bolsonaro, former Bolsonaro ministers there, including the Brazilian minister of the former Brazilian minister of environment, who was highly criticized for some of his for for his approach towards the Amazon in particular. So. I think this is definitely something that we'll have to watch and see. But Lula seems to be prioritizing the the environment in that sense. He will be able to negotiate how he is dealing with the with Congress in particular and in that front. Um, but he's he seems to be uh, pushing for a stronger stance on the environment as he goes to to Egypt, for example, to speak there at COP twenty seven. So. Explain this to us a little bit. What does this relationship between the president and Congress look like? And what's that process like? How does it play out? Yeah, so um, in the first round of elections, we also elected um, Congress in general, right? So the lower house as well as Senate. Um, We also elected governors for the states. So one of the outcomes of that first round of elections is that the uh, congressional composition in Brazil is mostly on the conservative side. So it's mostly right-leaning. That is a bit of a challenge for Lula, especially on the Senate side, because it's more conservative than the House. Um, So in order to pass some legislations, in order to push for some of these uh, priorities for him that tend to be a little bit controversial, can be seen as controversial, especially for those that are Bolsonaro supporters, it's going to be tricky to see what he's able to actually accomplish in his first um, year in, in office. I think that one of the lessons that we can that we see and if if history can show us anything is that Lula has been able to do well in in negotiating with with Congress um so that's one of the expectations that he will take that responsibility personally um to actually be able to pass um important legislation in the first year in in office so that's what i mean in terms of there are lots of promises, but we need to see the feasibility of that being actually passed and how he will make that happen. By the time this episode goes out, Lula will be at COP27. 
Collaboration with other nations is of course essential and part of COP27's mission when it comes to fighting climate change. But I wonder what kind of impact environmental issues, particularly with regards to the Amazon, has on Brazil's foreign relations. One thing that we've been seeing across the world is this um, greater import, putting this greater importance on environmental protection and climate, more ambitious climate goals. And I think that the Biden administration has been trying to lead that effort. We've seen also uh, the Europeans also put some constraints on Brazil because of the issue with deforestation in the Amazon. So we already saw uh, that with the Lula's, Lula's election, um, for example, Norway and Denmark have already said that they are going to bring back um, this fund for the Amazon that they had frozen during the Bolsonaro's years. Um, we already saw that, again, Lula is going to COP27. So I think there is this greater expectation um, on what his priorities will actually be um, in terms of Brazil's climate goals. But one of the things that we've been hearing and seeing a lot is the fact that when you're talking about climate in general, you can't exclude Brazil from that conversation, right? Um, so I think in a way there is there a an open door, an opportunity for Brazil and to the U.S. to work more closely together on that front, for greater cooperation on that front, not only to lead in the region, in the Americas, but also to lead um, this agenda globally. And I think that that's what the expectation um, is right now in terms of the, the new Lula government with regards to foreign policy. And then I think it, given Brazil's priorities and depending on Brazil's position on the environmental side, then you have other avenues for cooperation in terms of economy. For example, you have the Mercosur-EU agreement that didn't go through or wasn't implemented because of some concerns with regards to um, Brazil's environmental uh, goals and environmental um, approaches. So I think that this is one one that we one aspect that will be key for Brazil's foreign policy in general. So what does Brazil need right now from its allies when it comes to environmental protection? Because again, another one of the missions of this year's COP twenty seven is finance and for developed countries to be providing more financial assistance to developing countries that are facing the brunt of climate change. So, you know, is there something that Brazil needs immediately in terms of maybe monetary support or is there some other kind of support that would take precedence? Um, I think that's a great question. I think that I, I am looking forward to listening to what Lula has to say by COP27. Um, but this is also something that I know is playing a role in terms of the financing in particular. This Amazon for fund, for example, has already billions of dollars um, in it to be used um, for greater protection of the Amazon. Um, I think that there are other areas in which Brazil can also play a bigger role um, and maybe financing would be key, but maybe cooperation also in, sen in the sense of the regulatory um, landscape and also how you are uh, monitoring the deforestation, for example, might be one way. Um, also in terms of energy, how is the energy sector, um, Brazil is most of its energy matrix is already renewable. So how do you go, what does that, what does energy transition mean in that way, in that sense? Um, most of Brazil actually relies on roads. Um, so thinking about how, and, and we use ethanol, for example, as one of our, you know, fuels. So how can we go 
how can we lead the effort? How can Brazilians lead the effort to being even more um, sustainable in that sense? How can we learn, but also show how we our agriculture can actually be sustainable and has actually been um, sustainable? So I think that those are some of the conversations that uh, we should be having and that Brazil will definitely be having at COP27 and beyond. Um, the issue of carbon markets, for example, I know is one that has been of great interest in Brazil in particular and something that is going to be discussed and it has been discussed um, through the years and will be discussed at COP27 too. So I think that those are some of the, the things that come to mind um, as we think about uh, those priorities. That's it for this week's episode, but I'll be back soon to break down the next big data story. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for The Data Point by The Hindu. Thanks for listening.